Well, hello there, and welcome to this edition of the DMZ America podcast. It's Tuesday, October 19th. I'm Scott Standis coming to you from the right. And coming to you from the left, I am Ted Rall. Woo, so this week we lost an American hero. Colin Powell, former Secretary of State, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, National Security Council, uh, lifelong member of the military, truly one of the great Americans of the 20th and 21st century passed away um, from complications from COVID. He was actually fully vaccinated, but uh, by turns, he was also fighting cancer and was his autoimmune system had been significantly um, impaired. So we lost, we lost a great one, Ted. You um, have posted a column that says otherwise. I have. Uh, I don't. Uh, but you still I would... often do. You know, I, I have a tendency to judge people harshly uh, who know better. You know, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, I don't know if they knew better than, uh, than, than lying America into the Iraq war. But Colin Powell clearly did know better. Uh, he, he, he really did. Um, you know, I can read uh, part of this for you. I mean, yes, please. I mean, I, I open it up like this. If Colin Powell's life has meaning, it is as a cautionary tale about the perils of going along to get along. Rarely has history offered such a stark example of a human being being offered a clear existential choice between right and wrong. Hardly ever has so much hung in the balance for humanity and for an individual soul as when the then Secretary of State Colin Powell spoke to the United Nations to make the case for war in 2003. Now, there is an argument that Colin Powell was fooled, that he was lied to. But it was reported at, shortly thereafter by US News and World Report that the weekend before his speech, he was furious as he read the manufactured intelligence reports that he had been given by the Bush administration. I'm not reading this, this is BS, he shouted, although he did not use the acronym for BS. Throwing the cherry picked documents into the air he then picked himself up, took a deep breath, and went out and lied to the lied the world into a war that would forever soil America's reputation. Scott, this is one of the worst human beings that has ever walked the face of the earth. Literally, there never would have been a war against Iraq if not for Colin Powell. I went back and looked at the poll ratings uh, at, before he took the he went up to the podium uh, in New York on February fifth, two thousand three. Poll numbers were very bad for the Iraq war. The Bush administration had failed to convince the, the public for the case for war. Uh, and by the time he was done speaking, the polls had turned and everybody, uh, public opinion had changed and it was clear that we were going to war. He literally was the determining factor and he knew it wasn't true. And now a million people have died in Iraq. Um, the America's international reputation has been, I would say, permanently sullied, but certainly for, you know, it has been sullied over the last 18 years and with no end in sight. Um, it was an immoral war of aggression uh, that he knew there was no pretext for. And uh, I don't know, I don't know how you can defend this man at all. Well, I can defend him uh, any number of ways, not least. I mean, look at how he ran his, or, or, or lived his life. He uh, African-American from um, very modest means of, from New York City, going to West Point, um, finishing West Point, which is no small feat, going into the Army and serving and making a career of the Army, rising all the way up to, uh, to the level of head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
again, no mean feat, uh, a remarkable guy. Now, you know, I'm going to full disclosure here. I was one of those at the time you and I debated this passionately was the Iraq entry into the Iraq war. And I was very much for it. Uh, years later came to regret that decision as many people did, because like you said, we were lied to. And I believe that Colin Powell was lied to. Um, and he said he was in his autobiography where he said, I, you know, I, 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 I should have been more cynical. And that's exactly the view of my, myself, Ted, is that I should have been more cynical about going into a war. I will be going, you know, in the future, it's cold comfort, you know, for anyone um, looking at what, as you said, what's happened in Iraq. Well, or for the people who, you know, died. Well, that's, well, it's over for them. Now we have, (laughs) now we have to deal with, we have to deal with the repercussions and how it's going, you know, are we going to be gun shy, not going to go into places where we do need to go into? Um, but in the terms of the life of Colin Powell, how can I defend it? I can defend it because in terms of an American life, it's a grand and amazing life. Listen, you live a big life. You're going to make big mistakes. And this was a big mistake. And he admitted in his autobiography, this is a big mistake. This is a huge mistake. Um, but on balance, I really truly feel Colin Powell was an important, he, he was beyond important. He was important because first of all, polls, as you said, on both sides, he was, he was talked about as a potential presidential candidate for both parties. You think that's ever going to happen again? No, probably never not. I mean, never again. <laughs> I like never not. I never like- not. But, you know, he that's was the raven. Never. I mean, okay. I mean, okay. So, Scott, so the guy's highly accomplished. Um, you know, uh, lots of bad people are highly accomplished. Um, you know, Adolf Hitler was, sleep- was sleeping on the streets of Vienna selling pencils in 1920. And by 1933, he was the chancellor of Germany and absolute dictator of all of Europe within another seven years. I mean, this is, it's like he was highly accomplished, but he wasn't a good person. Um, So I don't think we should conflate those two things. I mean, I think about, you know, he, he, Powell played a minor role uh, people talk about the My Lai massacre. It's not really quite true that he covered up the My Lai massacre, but he did a, a memo crossed his desk from a whistleblower who was in the U.S. military, an army specialist, who notified the military that he was very dismayed by the way that U.S. troops were uh, committing atrocities and generally abusing uh, the South Vietnamese uh, civilians around the same time and at around the same place as My Lai happened. And when he that that document crossed his desk. Uh, Colin Powell, young officer in Vietnam, I believe he was a lieutenant colonel at the time. He had risen, risen that fast, as you say. Um, he, deci- he decided to characterize the soldier's report as an act of cowardice. And he helped basically tank this guy's career while his own career was, was soaring. I mean, what the guy said was at considerable personal risk was completely accurate and is something that the military should have taken note of. Um, this is, you know, the man with integrity uh, had his career ruined. The man without integrity uh, went on to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, you know, it's, I mean, so his, you know, you mentioned his autobiography and he said he'd been lied to. Um, you know, but that's not true. He wasn't lied to. I mean, he said himself, this is all BS. This is all BS. That's what he said. He knew it wasn't true. Um, yesterday, I was on, I was a guest on the Sputnik radio show uh, in the afternoon uh, with John Kiriakou, who's a CIA whistleblower. And he told a remarkable story 
that, you know, I think really deserves to be heard. He was on the Iraq war desk at the CIA uh, in 2002, 2003, when one day he walked into the office and none other than Secretary of State Colin Powell was waiting there. And he talked to him. He said he liked Colin Powell. He said he was a nice man, um, always had a wink and a smile for everyone, very courteous, um, uh, you know, a good guy to work with, a good administrator. So this is not a personal thing. Um, but he said that uh, the State of the Union address that had been written for Bush had been sent over to Langley to be vetted uh, for accuracy. And the CIA had struck most of the claims about WMDs as being false or unreliable. Uh, Kiriakou um, said that Powell had come over personally because he was annoyed, angry that these uh, about these deletions and wanted them put back in. He wanted Langley to sign off on intelligence that they didn't believe to be credible. Um, and he, the quote that Kiriakou said was, uh, sometimes you have to salute the flag. Uh, you know, the president has already decided we're going to war. You should, you know, we should just... Uh, you know, I, we really want, we need you guys to 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 sign off on it. And they did. Kiriakou said he was not proud of this moment, but that, that he signed off on it. Uh, and the other guys did as well. Um, you know, this is, this is, he wasn't lied to. He knew this stuff wasn't, at best, it wasn't reliable. And you don't go to war over intel that's not reliable, at best. Um, I, I, I mean, you know, it's not a mistake when you do it on purpose. I mean, you know, it's like if you're on a, if you're a, if you're a judge, you don't send someone to prison uh, without enough, without sufficient evidence. And you certainly don't start lobbing missiles into a country and cross their border illegally uh, in a war of aggression, unless you have evidence, solid evidence, irrefutable evidence. That, that's the phrase that Colin Powell used at the UN speech, irrefutable. Well, it was clearly refutable because it wasn't true. There were no weapons of mass destruction of any kind, nuclear, biological, or chemical in Iraq, none. They'd all been destroyed at the end of the Gulf War and, not, and they'd ever had a nuclear program. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but this guy, I mean, I think we, we think that because he was like affable and, uh, you know, likable and, and obviously accomplished that he was a good person, but... No, American hero doesn't do that. The, the whistleblower who he screwed over, that's an American hero. Yeah, see, I, there's some holes in that that I have to disagree with. Um, you can only go with the information you're given. You can only go with um, what your superiors are telling you. And what his superiors were telling us, and there's not many superiors to the Secretary of State, frankly, is that we're going to war. These things are actual. You, we, here's the intelligence we have. Some of it was skewed. Some of it was false. Turns out that it was. It was. And so, you know, I'm not going to make excuses for making a mistake. It was a massive mistake. No question. No question. But the kind of person that Colin Powell was, yeah, you, you, you kind of slough off saying he was a good person, blah, blah, blah. We've had terrible people be Secretary of State. We've had terrible people be president. But we also looking at a guy who, when, uh, for instance, um, Barack Obama was being birthered and his faith was being questioned, um, Colin Powell stepped forward, again, because he still carried that kind of cachet with the American people and said, this is BS. This is, again, the, publicly saying that, you know, he's not a Muslim, he's a Christian. And, and, but the bigger question is, so what? 
if he was a Muslim, I mean, what possible difference could that make, you know, as an American, him running for, are we going to tell every little, you know, Muslim boy and girl in this country that they can't run for president? I mean, it was a very salient and really, frankly, quite beautifully put point when the country needed to hear it. And it got, probably got Barack Obama partially, uh, it's partially responsible for getting him elected. My point, simply put, is that for if you're looking to service, if you're looking to honor, and, and I, I think that you can't do better than Colin Powell. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the the birther thing because that sort of reminds us of the uh, of the fact that he was politically, you know, he he flirted with both parties and ended up. Uh, you know, sort of basically presenting himself as a Republican, but he was all over the place politically. I was reading that he decided, and I, I will say that this is, I think, was the right decision. He decided not to run for president in 1996. And, you know, he said, uh, and the Washington Post reports uh, reported yesterday, I believe, that he made that decision based on the metric that he couldn't identify the nation's top problems and then he could not identify their solutions. So, and he did not think he was necessarily the right person to uh, articulate those problems or, uh, or identify those solutions, even if he was able to do that. So therefore, based on those metrics, he turned it down. But, you know, uh, Scott, you and I were around in 1996, and the incumbent president at that time was Bill Clinton, who was uh, doing very well in the polls. Uh, he looked hard to beat. And uh, I can't help but thinking that, you know, Colin Powell didn't want to embarrass himself by being a sacrificial lamb against Bill Clinton. And, um, you know, he often Colin Powell had a knack for presenting uh, for framing decisions that were made basically to enhance his personal reputation and his career as acts of great grand integrity. But. Bob Dole ended up being the, the sacrificial lamb that year and got clobbered. Uh, he was a good man, Bob Dole, uh, a, tr- a real American hero who was uh, injured in service of his country and uh, fighting the, the Germans in Italy uh, during World War II. And, um, you know, I, I think if Powell was happy to, to step aside and, and watch that happen, he had to have thought, well, there but for the grace of God go I. Um, you know, and I think you know, in terms of the uh, coming out against the birther movement and uh, backing Barack Obama, it looks to me like, again, that was just Colin Powell being Colin Powell, looking out for numero uno as usual, because he was migrating over to the Democratic Party at that time. And this was part of it. I mean, you know, when you join a gang, you have to show loyalty, right? So when he was in the cabinet for Bush, they sent him up to uh, to show his bona fides by going by by giving that speech, as uh, Dick Cheney told him. You know, you're popular. You can afford to few, lose a few IQ, uh, not IQ points. You can afford a few, a few uh, percent uh, poll percent polls poll points, right? And I think the same thing is true. Back in 2008, 2009, uh, when he was supporting uh, Obama. Look, he was migrating over. He was effectively becoming a Democrat. He did become a Democrat. He renounced the Republican Party and and showing fealty to Obama, who obviously was born in this country and obviously was not a Muslim, but as you say, 
that's neither here nor there. But I, you know, again, it's like, to me, integrity, and uh, I read this actually by a conservative writer, this definition is, and I think he was right, is integrity is when you do the right thing, even when it hurts you. Um, And I don't see that in Colin Powell's personal history. I'm not that from I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the personal history to know what times that has happened. I do know this that you know, and this is where I actually respected John Kerry. John Kerry went to Vietnam. Um, Colin Powell went to West Point and knew that after after graduation, they hand you a um, they, you know they hand you a gun and they say go that way and shoot those people. Colin well, Powell, as an officer, so more accurately, they hand you a gun and they say, shoot, tell your men to go shoot other people. And if they don't, you shoot them. He was in the field. He, I, I believe it was twice. I, he did two tours of duty in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's admirable for, for, for to do a war that you, you probably have to know is pretty ridiculous, especially at that point. Um, and that's, you, you weren't going to win and that, you know, this is, but your country asked you to serve and you serve. Now you and I are going to have very different opinions on whether or not that is, and we're going to save that for the next uh, for the next segment, but um, I don't. I, I still believe strongly that Colin Powell is going to go down in history, and, and I think his place in history is going to be very glowing. But, but that that moment at the at the uh, UN when he made that speech, and he can, and you're right, you're absolutely right. He had so much cachet with the American people uh, that they that when he said, "This is the facts. This is why we need to go," and we went. No question about that, and that's going to be a, a and that's going to be a mark on his record. There's no question about that. But in terms of balance, in terms of looking at this man's life, good Lord, Ted, you can't deny that this was a grand and glorious American life and worthy of uh, of respect and and honor. Or I guess you can because you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, you know his his uh, his life reminds me the case for his life being admirable reminds me a lot of Hillary Clinton's campaign for president where she was presented as the most qualified person ever to run for the presidency which is just hilarious and Adams would probably disagree with that yeah I think Thomas Jefferson might disagree with that um uh so you know Abe Lincoln might disagree with that but the thing is that uh Richard Nixon might disagree with that but it was a um Hillary Clinton argued that basically her resume uh, made her a good person. Look at me. I've had lots of different jobs. Uh, You know, I I was a U.S. senator. Uh, I did this. I did that. I was secretary of state. She she argued that she traveled a lot, had logged over a million frequent flyer miles on Air Force Six or whatever it is. I know. Um, Yeah. You and I joked about that (laughs) because it was just like, yeah, it wasn't that she accomplished anything with all that traveling. She just got a lot of frequent flyer miles. She did. I mean, you know, she's like, she's like it up in the air in that movie. Like, uh, does she get to sit in the cockpit? Um, you know, uh, that's, it's just insane. But the point is it, she, it didn't make her qualified and uh, being, you know, being really successful and raise, rising quickly in the ranks, as I think anyone who's been in the military will tell you does not necessarily make you a good person. Um, you know, lots of lots of people have been uh, very successful and gotten, you know, scum rises to the top 
and you suck up to the right people. And that's especially true in the officer corps. I mean, you know, sometimes the very best people are discriminated against because they are the very best people and the very worst people rise to the top because they are the very worst people. And I think, you know, look, I think Colin Powell, you are right, Scott, that Colin Powell's uh, legacy is very important. It, it says a lot about where we are as a nation and what our values are. And I do think it it gets to issues of right and wrong that like don't get discussed enough. So, you know, we're going to go an extra segment. Uh, we're going to talk, keep yep. talking about this into the next, into the next segment. So uh, please, uh, thanks for listening to DMZ America and we'll be right back. So welcome back. We've been talking about Colin Powell here on DMZ America podcast. We're glad you're listening with my pal, Ted Rawl. Um, so let's, let's, we've been talking about the specifics of, of Colin Powell's life, but I mean, more to the point, and especially you, Ted, <laughs> because you are, uh, you have a reputation and rightly earned. And I think, I think actually, I think you're probably right in doing it. And that when people die, when people pass away, you jump on it right away. If you just don't think that they're good people, you say good riddance to bad garbage. I mean, you've, you've said this in interviews, you've said it in your columns, you've said it in your cartoons. Is there, I mean, what's too soon? When is too soon? Like right now we're talking, Colin Powell's body's still pretty warm, what, um, but we're still, we're talking about, or you're talking about, you know, not talking you're talking ill of the dead which i you know i live down here in the south they just don't do that down here boy and um <laughs> but but seriously when's is there too soon can i throw out a quick story and it's, it's salient i swear to god neil bortz the great um um uh, radio personality from atlanta he's a libertarian uh he had been trying to get his own show in the atlanta station he'd been doing a lot of fill and work all the stuff you do to try to get a radio show the morning show guy dies at night he got off the air went home went oh i don't feel so and it was over okay as can happen as, as often. hopefully not by hopefully this will not happen to one of us today but That's, it could well if it does happen i hope it's pretty much like you know and i hope it's on the air <laughs> that would be great podcasting right there my friend yeah. okay so the guy does that morning that very morning neil goes to goes to the radio station and says hey i want that slot and they're going and and, and everyone who heard that story was aghast ted they're just what, like what a ghoul what a horrible human and his point which is extremely well taken is you know what the guy's not going to be any less dead in a week than he is today true and there was a knee and then, you know, and so I, you know what? I think that's true. I mean, I mean, do you, I mean, is there too soon? I mean, I know you get a ton of criticism. Uh, the Pat Tillman column when he was uh, cartoon cartoon, rather, I'm sorry, when he was killed in action, terror widows. I mean, you, you, you're not, you fear to tread where others won't go. <laughs> is that how that goes? I don't, I don't fear. Yeah. Um, no. well, I might fear, but I do it anyway. Um, you know, uh, and I also kind of a lot of people are mad at me because I did sort of a mean uh, Roger Ebert obituary uh, cartoon. Oh, what, was you, what was that? I'm sorry. Help me. Well, one time I met Roger Ebert and uh, he and I realized that he wasn't very smart. Um, he his favorite movie, as it is for many uh, people of his generation, is Citizen Kane. And so I met him at this party. He was alone. I, I'd been drinking, shocking. And I sat next to him and, you know, I had liquid courage. So I said, look, you know, I understand why, why Citizen Kane is an important fil uh, film, obviously, cinematically, as well as 
uh, culturally more than anything else and politically. But I don't feel like it's held up as entertainment. I feel like it's kind mm -hmm. of a drag to watch. Uh, you know, you can't like really show it to a young person today and have them really enjoy it just as entertainment. And so, you know, what do you think? So then he, his answer was, well, it was really political. It was very, very important when it came out. And he just kept going on about that. And I kept trying to bring him back and say, yeah, but it's not an entertaining film, right? It's well, not a film. That, entertainment. Yeah, I think you're probably right, by the way. It's a great film, though. It's an important film, but I don't yeah. know that it's and it's kind of like worth seeing like as sort of like film history class, but it's not like a, and I think there's a lot of movies like that, but there's a lot, it's just cause it's not cause it's old. I mean, there's lots of, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like it, you know, uh, lots, it happened one night is an old film. Double Indemnity is an old film. Uh, the Sorrow and the Pity is an old film. The um, Casablanca. You know, Casablanca, Wizard, Wizard of Oz, uh, you know. Um, the Passion uh, of Joan of Arc, which is a, probably the greatest silent film ever made. Very, there's a lot of very cool. Did you ever look at that? Movies. I gave you a copy of that. You still haven't watched it, have you? I, can I have tell not watched it. It's probably <laughs> still in shrink wrap. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to watch it. You know what? That's a reminder. I'm going to, I'm writing myself a note to watch that. <laughs> anyway. So it was a, so Roger Ebert was mean. So, to so I just said like, look, he's just not, he's just not that smart because he can't even answer this very simple question. He could just, you know, answer, well, you're right or you're wrong, but he couldn't even address it. It was like, he didn't get it. So anyway, I, you know, I just thought it was like, well, here's this guy who's lionized as the most important or certainly the most popular film critic in, the, in America when he died. And he wasn't really very smart. And I thought, well, you know, film critics should be smart. So I wrote this, uh, I wrote about my experience and then lots of people said I was mean, which was probably true. Um, but but the point is, it's like, yeah, when's, when's too soon? I mean, look, uh, the Neil Bort story, it might've been, it was tacky because like, you know, the guy had just died and probably they should have gone through the motions for a few days of, I don't know, just playing like, uh, you know, the Marseillaise or something <laughs> <laughs> for, for the entire thing. I don't know. Uh, I guess in his case, uh, you know, battle him, battle him of the Republic. But, but in the case of, um, you know, but it, here we're talking about really an obituary. And look, a week before Colin Powell died, no one cared about Colin Powell. And next week after he's buried, no one's going to care about Colin Powell. We, this is when people die, that's the time when we assess their lives. We talk about their accomplishments. We talk about why they matter and what mark they left. And we assess the good, the bad, and the ugly, or at least we should. And in this country, we have too much hagiography where we, you know, just say, uh, nice things about people who don't necessarily really deserve them, or we only, or we leave out, studiously leave out the glaring flaws in their life. Um, and, you know, we, this happens a lot with people like presidents. Um, and, you know, I mean, Jimmy Carter's going to die very soon. And I have a whole litany of complaints about him that I'm, are going to come out and the people have forgotten about. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's, I mean, I certainly would expect when I died, if anybody's paying attention or there are any obituaries or anybody discusses my death, I would want them to talk about the whole picture. When, when you know, Steve Jobs knew he was going to die, he talked to his biographer, uh, Walter Isaacson, and he, he said he wanted a warts and all biography. He didn't want a hagiography. He wanted, he Wait, told how? all of his friends to talk to him freely, gave, opened all of his archives. I mean, that's, that's the way.
And that's a great, and that's a great entree to the next, my, th- which is something I always wrestle with, I, I, which is how do you measure a life? You know, Steve Jobs was a complete and utter, utter douchebag, no doubt to a bunch of people. But Just, a great father. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't even, <laughs> he wouldn't even agree to the paternity of his own daughter. Um, I mean, so this is an awful person, but by extension, he changed technological for better and ill. And you and I have talked about the ill part a lot, and there's more to come. Is he a great man? Should he be felt? Is he a great man? I mean, and that he's certainly an important man. No question about that. So in your view, what's a great man? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Colin Powell. Let's get back to Colin Powell. Um, married forever, raised a family, served his country, um, never a, a, a dint of scandal uh, attached to this guy. Uh, Except for the whole cooperating in the murder of a million people. But okay. Well, that, that, and that, that I'm going to say that record is murky. You don't seem to think so, but it, it's, it, it is murky-ish. Um that's a sign. That's a he's I mean, that's, murked it. That's a great life. A first African American head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, first African American uh, Secretary of State. I mean, this is a big, important life. I mean, so it is an important life. There's no question about that. When he's dead and buried, people are going to forget. And him. even the killing the million people—that's also important. Well, especially to the million, they were kind of like. No, I mean, it's like he changed history. <laughs> I mean, I think it, very rarely does a war happen because of one person, and here it did. I don't know that you can lay. I don't think you can lay it all on Colin Powell. I think if that speech have. hadn't happened, Colin Powell, the, that we would not have invaded Iraq. Yes, we would go have. back I, and look at the Gallup polls from that period. Doesn't matter the polls. I still believe that that Dick Cheney and uh, they were determined. And who was his assistant? Um, George W. Bush uh, went to well, the, would have gone to war regardless. There was there was Paul Wolfowitz. There was all those neocons. Like there was, uh, of course, Donald Rumsfeld, the worst. Yeah, yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> I'm just remembering. There are known unknowns, but one of the things I know is that I'm glad Donald Rumsfeld is dead. See, I mean, you say stuff like that, and it, 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 it drives people crazy. Even people who love you, not myself. Why, why you say? Why do you say stuff like? That? Because he's a genocidal maniac, and if you can't be happy when a genocidal maniac is dead, there's something wrong with you. I mean, you know, it's like it's like people celebrated when Hitler died. Um, you know, I mean, why wouldn't they? It's. Uh, <laughs> There's, did you ever see um, Jojo Rabbit? I'm sorry. This this is I have this historical point. That only you a bit. Only a only a little bit. And this is very Not much really. like our, our our general conversations tend to jump around like this. But they talk about the kids are saying, yeah, yeah, you know, Hitler killed himself. Did people in Germany know he killed himself right away? Yeah, it was announced uh, on on the radio. Oh, was that he had taken his own life? Um, no, they said that he had died in combat. Not that he was, they were like, said he was like defending the Reich in Fortress Berlin. So, you know, I've been blathering. How do you, okay, let me ask you, Ted, how do you measure a life? I mean, so I think, I mean, so there's, you know, obviously there's different metrics, there's importance. And I think note the very fact that we're talking, you know, I wrote a column about Colin Powell. You Are you going to do a, co- a cartoon about him? I don't know. I'm, I'm might, under- though. And there were I'm certain, certain when you were on staff at, more at the Trib, you oh, might have done. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, lots of our colleagues are going to do uh, obituary cartoons and probably already have. Ed um, Hall, a person, a cartoonist who you and I both admire very much. Yeah. Done. And here you don't have to be anyone's puppet. Right. So, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. 
Um, well, yeah, that that's clever. Uh, the, you know, Ed, Ed does good work. Um, there was a bunch of, uh, cart- yeah. And so I think the point, you know, obviously he's important. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, you know, it's like one of those, my personal favorite detail is like uh, the New York Times is like Colin Powell dies, live updates. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what? Um <laughs> <laughs> Ted, this just in. <laughs> I mean, Colin like, Powell is still dead. I mean, dead? it's like, or maybe not. In which case, that's going to make him very important. But, yes. <laughs> but like, uh, so, so I mean, you know, for me, what I'm trying to get at is how do you assess a life? And I think, to me, it's about morality and uh, trying to have had integrity, try to do the right. The person who tries to do the right thing, ideally on a broad scale, but even if it's on a very small scale, someone who had difficult decisions to make uh, and took chances when it at their personal expense and did what was right. I mean, I think of someone like, uh, you know, I, I think of someone like, uh, you know, Charles de Gaulle, whose politics I disagreed with, um, you know, he was a uh, very right wing guy, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, you know, here's murdering communists or people he thought were communists, by the way. Well, that's well, murdering. That's a little extreme. But he did. Yeah, he did assassinate. He did assassinate uh, Admiral Darlan, who for being a little too cozy with Vichy. Um, so he was definitely, uh, you know, he, he could he could kill. Um, but he was a guy who, you know, he took a big chance. He was uh, personally, he, he had to flee France. He, he left his beloved mother under Nazi occupation. He was sentenced to death in absentia by his own government. Um, he was ridiculed and insulted by the American government. FDR hated him, uh, treated him like crap. He had to fight tooth and nail to lead the free French resistance and unify the resistance under the disparate and, um, you know, I'm not going to tell his whole story, but I think, you know, a guy who, I mean, he was a guy who suffered for what he believed in and uh, was willing to die for it. And, you know, and, and what he believed in was important and, and noble. I mean, you know, Adolf Hitler believed in, you know, what he, he definitely had strong beliefs and, and gave his life for them, but they weren't good beliefs. Um, the, I, I think you you know someone who has a strong moral center is willing to sacrifice for it uh, is can be counted upon to do the right thing in a pinch. Those are the things I look for in a in a person. Okay, I would say that Colin Powell fits that mold pretty pretty well. I mean, he was married for five thousand years. I mean, I may exaggerate. Fifty four years. Yeah, I just read. Yeah married for a long time. He had a family. He was, uh, re- when he had loyalty, it was, I think it was unbending his loyalty to his family, to his, to his marriage, to his country. Um, you know, I, I think that fits the mold, but like you said, there's that, you know, it's always that, and you hate to say this because it sounds like you're sloughing up. Well, you do one thing, you know, <laughs> you know, John Wilkes Booth was a great actor. He does one thing, every, all that stuff doesn't matter all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what that's what Jean-Paul Sartre said. He said that for better, whether it's fair or not, we are human beings are always judged on their worst action, you know, and, you know, nobody cares if, uh, you know, John Wayne Gacy, um, you know, was a good first date or, <laughs> wow. you know, 
or, not or did he kill you and eat you? But other than that, you know, right? Nobody cares if if uh, you know Jeffrey Dahmer was considerate when he parked his car and didn't and didn't scratch throw his door open so it dinged your car. Um, no one cares about that, and um, and I think you know it, it isn't necessarily fair. Um, you know what I keep coming back to with Powell is look. He knew it was a lie while he was when he did it, and every, he also knew what hung in the balance. I mean, we haven't talked about this, but this was a guy who was pretty skeptical about uh, war. He did not really like the way that war had been uh, fought by the United States uh, in the 1980s. Um, he was against the Gulf War, really. He advised against it, but he ended up. Uh, you know, uh, saying, okay, well, if we're doing it, we have to do the Powell Doctrine. We go yes. in with overwhelming force so that we win quickly and decisively. Um, and it worked. And you uh, know what victory looks like? That was really important. He says, we have, and we have an exit strategy. Those, that was the Powell Doctrine. You go However, in. also, let's not forget the highway of death, which is an absolutely re reprehensible episode in American history. I mean, it's one of the worst war crimes that the United States has ever committed. Uh, the Iraqi army was fleeing from Kuwait, which is, uh, you know, the mission was to throw the Iraqis out of Kuwait. And they were out of Kuwait, they were fleeing. And um, the U and uh, George H.W. Bush and Colin Powell um, and Storman Norman uh, agreed to they sent they sent fighter jets out there to decimate and destroy a retreating army, which is under international law a war crime. They were uh, invading Iraq was was not part of the UN authorized mission. Uh, it was and and you're not allowed to shoot at a retreating army. And to his but um, to his credit, George H W Bush was getting a lot of pressure. Say, let's just march into Baghdad. He was getting a lot of pressure, but you know, hey, uh, there's wasn't there some guy named Truman or something who said Truman Show? I don't know who said uh, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, you know, so what? You're the president of the United States. He got, you know, George H. W. Bush got pressured. So he got no, he got pressured, and he said no. He did not, obviously, did not, right. did not go into doing the Kuwait War, did not go into Baghdad, did not get rid of Saddam Hussein. But the point is that, like, getting back to Powell, look, he was skeptical of war, and he also wasn't in favor of this, of the 2003 Iraq War, Gulf War II, as they were calling it at the time. And so he, and he, so he was against it. He knew there was no intel. All the intel that, had, that he had seen was literally stamped WEAK in all caps by the CIA. WEAK, in other words, can't be sourced, unreliable. And so... If that's the case, then, you know, he and he, so he knew that he went up there and he was reading off a litany of garbage. There's even one part uh, of his speech where he's quoting an intercept about that shows um, Iraqi officials discussing the, the location of materials that the U.N. inspectors are looking for. And he literally uh, at the U.N. added lines to make the of dialogue and stuff them into the mouths of the Iraqis that they never said to make them look worse. I mean, it is, I mean, he, it's unconscionable. He lied, he knew he was lying and he was lying to do something that he knew was wrong and wouldn't work out well. I mean, I don't know, like, why, I mean, this is one of those rare times 
when not having integrity actually cost him, cost it to your career, because he would have certainly been a viable presidential contender if he had refused to do that. And in 2004, he could have run for president as a Democrat. There was a lot of talk even in 2004 after that happened. Uh, Clarence Page, uh, who you know, wrote yes. a column uh, calling for John Kerry to appoint Colin Powell as his vice president, as a Democrat. So there was a lot of, he still had political will, but his career kind of withered on the vine after that happened, his reputation flagged, the American people realized that they had been lied to, and no one had lied to them more persuasively than Colin Powell. Well, clearly you and I disagree on this one. So uh, we're gonna have to leave it at that because we gotta get going on the next segment. But uh, yeah, uh, Scott Stannis, Colin Powell, great man, Ted Rawl, Colin Powell. War not. criminal, <laughs> war criminal. I mean, he's a warmonger, he's a war criminal. Um, he's lucky to have escaped prosecution at The Hague. I mean, he was a, he's literally just absolutely one of the worst people to have ever walked the United States of America. And I'm saying he's probably one of the best. So we're going to have to leave it at that, buddy. But, you know, hey, we'll find common ground on something. As in, there was a guy named Colin Powell. <laughs> there was. Is, is this a limerick? <laughs> and what he did in Iraq was really foul. Anyway, <laughs> he took up some bombs and i, I can't do this. <laughs> all right we're gonna be back and we're gonna be talking about um well pete Buttigieg and taking paternity leave and i think our viewpoints are really going to surprise you welcome back to dmc america i'm ted rawl coming to you from the left I'm Scott Stantis coming to you from the right. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has been dealing with disruptions in the supply chain, something that the White House is paying attention to. But it came to surprise as many Americans to learn that uh, the secretary, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, and not perhaps the most qualified man to ever hold this job, has, uh, <laughs> has been on a paternity leave for the last two years months. Uh, Tucker Carlson over at Fox News has taken him to task for that. And the secretary had this to say. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to apologize to Tucker Carlson or anyone else for taking care of my premature newborn infant twins. The work that we are doing is joyful, fulfilling, wonderful work. It's important work. And it's work that every American ought to be able to do when they welcome a new child into their family. Uh, so there's Mayor Pete, or I should say Secretary Pete, uh, talking about uh, family leave. I personally, Scott, don't have any issue with family leave. I think family leave is a wonderful and beautiful thing and that everybody should have it and everyone should take it if they want it. But I think Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, only became, if I'm not mistaken, Secretary of Transportation on January 20th. It's now October, which means he's only had the job for nine months, two of which he's not been at work. And, you know, he's it's not an ordinary job. This guy is a top government official in charge of uh, a he has a big, big job. And I don't think that you should agree to become a cabinet member or a vice president or a president 
or anyone at that level, you shouldn't be taking vacation at all. Oh, well, see, that's ridiculous, Ted. I'm sorry. That's that's absurd. Of course, you need vacations and paternity leave. They didn't have paternity leave when I had my kids, by the way. And it, it really ticked me off because, you know, I, I, I that would have been great to be able to spend time with the, with my kids. Um, and especially when they were newborn, especially when Janine really needed that help because uh, look, childbirth looks like it sucks. It looks like hard work. It just does. Um, and so for, uh, for Secretary Buttigieg to take that time off, I don't have a serious problem with it. Where, I, where, I, where you and I may have some ground for, for agreement is, you know, you and I have been on, on vacations before and, uh, you know, we do take them. And sometimes, believe it or not, people, whoever's listening to this podcast, um, a breaking news story happens and Ted and I as commentators have to comment on it. That's our job description. And we've taken time away from vacation to do it. Apparently, the good secretary has taken not taken time away from a job, as Ted points out, that he didn't know what he was doing. But by, 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 by turns, Ted, I mean, you know, how many times is he going to be a new father? You know, I mean, how many times is he going to, um, you know, need paternity leave? Well, uh, you know, look, um, you know, the uh, elephant in the room and, you know, I'm the kind of guy who mentions it. Like, look, uh, the secretary Buttigieg is gay. He's he's uh, his he has a husband. Um, I'm going to assume he has newborn twins. I'm going to assume that this was accomplished probably through surrogacy um, so uh, it, or something or perhaps adoption, uh, possibly. But because it's twins, I'm going to just suspect IVF and surrogacy. Um, and if I'm right, this is just pure speculation. Uh, this is the kind of event, this fatherhood, uh, unlike many Americans, was planned. You know, I mean, it's like he knew they decided they were going to do this. Um, he knew he was going to be um, nominated to a high post inside the Biden administration if he won, um, you know, last year, because Buttigieg was one of the key um, Democrats who was part of the scheme during right before uh, Super Tuesday to co-endorse uh, Joe Biden and hand over the nomination to him at the expense of the much more deserving Bernie Sanders. Uh, and so he knew that as part of that, you know, he was going to be nominated. He was going to get some kind of gift. And, you know, I think we do need to talk about, you know, why he's, un I say he's unqualified. Quite simply, um, he, when he, his previous experience was as mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and as mayor of a city that I believe had 80 buses, um, those 80 buses, <laughs> 80, 80, uh, those 80 buses were not even under the control of his office. The, apparently in South Bend, there is a separate, the home of Notre Dame University, there is a um, separate transportation um, regional transit authority kind of thing that runs the transit system such as it is. So uh, he had literally no experience. He never was in charge of so much as a single go-kart. Uh, and so, you know, here he is fresh at work. He knew he had this job coming. He decides to become a father at this particular time. I mean, I kind of think a father should be at home with his kid if he can be, but two kids in this case, premature, as he points out. Look, it, to me, this is just like you have now married the people, the, 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 the government of the United States of America. You are, that's your husband now. You know, not like you're, I'm sorry, you, there's a higher calling here. You know, it's, you have, you have this commitment uh, for as long as you serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States, uh, you have a job to do. Two months 
off? Really? I mean, he's just got the job. So you subscribe to the Leo McGarry code, which is uh, for those of you it's a reference to the West Wing. Leo McGarry was the uh, chief of staff to the president. He comes home and he misses. I think he missed this um, anniversary or something. And his wife says, how important and asks, how important is this job? Is this job more important than your marriage? And Leo McGarry character says, yeah, right now it is. It's this is more important than my marriage. And of course, it broke up the marriage because, you know, who wants to hear that? Um, He was right. He was totally right. I don't know. I mean, we just talked the last segment about what makes a good person, right? What and part of what makes a good person's fealty to the things that are important in your life. Um, to my, in my view, uh, that's your spouse, your mate, your partner, um, and it's your children. And those are the things that are important. Here's the thing: the office isn't going to hold your hand when you're dying of cancer, right? They're not going to be at your deathbed when you're taking your last gasping breaths. It's going to be your family, and that's where your loyalty and fealty lies, Ted. I mean, I'm sorry, I disagree with you on this. I think that taking this time off, yeah, you know, he should go into the office once or twice a week. That's not going to kill you, right? Um, and but by turns, he these two kids apparently premature. I don't know what kind of issues these particular children are facing premature kids have significant health issues uh so he and his husband are going to look after and take care of and i think that that shows to me a level of priority that's probably better than uh, you know going all in and marrying the job i i don't know that any job is worth that well i mean I, this also to me you know while you were saying that i was thinking of uh, some, you know, the issue of solidarity and appropriateness. I mean, it seems to me like he's really out of touch. I mean, most Americans, as he pointed out later in the same interview uh, that we played a clip of there earlier, um, don't get paid family leave. We don't have it in this country. We're one of the few uh, modern industrialized nations that doesn't provide that in the workplace. And so it seems to me like government officials at the very top echelon, he's in the cabinet, um, should have the app, they should have the lowest um, available benefits available to any American worker out of solidarity. They should have the lowest pay, they should mm-hmm. have the lowest, the, the shortest vacations, they should have the fewest benefits so that they understand what Amer- real hardworking Americans are dealing with every single day, and it'll help uh, concentrate them, focus their minds a little bit to focus on this, on these issues. And it's, you know, it's not really unheard of. Uh, uh, You know, Mayor Pete, I keep saying Mayor Pete, Secretary Buttigieg is a, uh, he's married, and gay marriage is relatively new. But there were many uh, left-leaning, pro-gay, straight couples who refused to get married in solidarity for their gay brethren who could not get married uh, during those years, during those dark years, because they thought it wasn't right that they should be able to codify their love while gay and lesbian couples could not do the same. Um, You know, who is Secretary Buttigieg to be out there, uh, you know, to take two months off as cabinet secretary, Scott, you're not focusing on that. He's, this isn't just a job. I mean, he's a cabinet secretary. Um, You know, he's one of arguably the 10 most important officials in the United States government. Um, He's in the line of secession. He could become president, uh, you know, if enough dudes die at the the right time, you know, like in that Kiefer Sutherland show. Um, 
you know, it's it's like, which is actually kind of a cool show, sort of um, weird pacing. But, you know, yeah, he could. So I just think it's unbelievable that he thinks it's OK to take that kind of time off when most people can't. And when he's got an insanely important job. Yeah, I subscribe to that theory. Well, it's insanely it's insanely important right now, particularly. And that's because of the supply chain issues that are facing this country. And that's going to become worse and worse. It's impacting in the American people. So, you know, that's where I come and say, you know, there's there's obviously a crime and this is a crisis. So in times of crisis, I think your, your, your partner can say, you know, go go into the office for a little bit and, you know, take a care little of, bit. Take care of the crisis. You know, go go, go in for 45 minutes, even an hour. And, you know, go be you go be secretary of transportation. You <laughs> go do that, Petey. OK, we talked about, you know, who is and isn't ever talked about. Have you ever talked about the secretary of transportation in your life? I mean, really? Uh, that is a fair point. Uh, that would be <laughs> never. And, you know, it's ironic. I, th- I don't think most of the time I ever kind of ever, ever knew until we had a totally unqualified secretary of transportation. I never really knew who he was. Or she, who is a totally unqualified Uh, secretary of uh, Buttigieg. Ah. He's got to be the least qualified cabinet member since uh, a dent Reagan appointed a dentist as secretary of energy. Is that true? Now refresh my memory here. That's James. uh, I believe his name was Edwards. James Edwards. He was a dentist. Yeah, he was a dentist. Um, But I, I think his teeth were sparkly clean. And uh, and I, he probably flossed regularly as well. Well, that's important. <laughs> um, that was the worst Ronald Reagan imitation in the history of uh, broadcast. So you're you're welcome. Um, yeah. Okay. So I mean, I, now I got to ask you, Ted. Did you take time off when Eric was born, your son? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, I uh, you know I'm I'm mostly freelance. Well, I'm freelance. So I wasn't able to take any time off. Uh, my work was still due. I worked ahead as much as I could when I knew he was uh, going to be born. Um, you know, there was a, a expected date, which turned out to be accurate. But no, I had to work the whole time. Yeah, I got, I think I got like a day off. <laughs> Maybe two. <laughs> I mean, I won't, I won't lie. I, I took solace in my work. Um, you know, I mean, it was like, hey, this is my opportunity to get away from a loud, screaming, annoying creature. God, people love babies. Like, why? I don't even understand. No, people who don't have babies love babies. People who have babies know better. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, you know, so Tom Tomorrow, our colleague, he had had a child a year earlier than me. And he told me at the time, he's like, you know, there's not much in it for you when you're a when you're a father in particular, it, it's more, it gets more, they get more interesting as they get older. Uh, but, you know, moms sort of have this hardwired, you know, love for their babies. And, and that certainly was my experience. Um, I don't know if that's true for everyone. I, I personally just find him increasingly entertaining and interesting as he gets older. Not annoying? Well, there's, he's a teenager. So uh, yeah, <laughs> annoying, annoying does happen, you know. I will never forget. I I don't know why this really has nothing, no bearing except to have, talking about having kids. My son was, did not sleep. My youngest um, is a, a little about two years older than a younger rather than my other and uh, taking care of them was exhausting. And I was literally for those of you familiar with the urinal uh, was standing up there and going, you know, doing what you do at a urinal and uh, the tile in front of me, Ted looked so nice. It looked so cool. 
so inviting, so restful. I put my head against it. The next thing I hear is someone going, Scott, <laughs> Scott. I go, huh, what, what, what? I'd fallen asleep going pee at the urinal. I was that exhausted. No, I, I know. It's like, uh, oh my God, my, my wife, uh, one time I, I went in to change uh, my kid's diapers and uh, I was like, okay, it's all done. And then she's like, uh, Ted, um, you want to come see something? <laughs> and he was, he had his diapers on outside his pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, it's the Madonna look. You know, um, <laughs> i was like okay so yeah i'm just that tired yeah um, oh my god that's <laughs> yeah did you try well, to play it straight too or did you just try and go yeah <laughs> i started laughing right away i mean yeah, i had to on and off of saying that's cultural that's how my that's how the french do it <laughs> that's that's right don't don't insult la france oui. um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was totally, yeah. Well, so, I mean, look, I, I, I'm going to just say, um, you know, look, Secretary Buttigieg is, is suffering his punishment because he's at home with, you know, premature, preemies, twins. That's got to be extremely challenging, very hard. And um, so it's good that he's home. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I do think, honestly, I don't even understand the president taking vacations. All that Camp David crap, like, oh, you know, Obama going to Martha's Vineyard. I mean, I don't know where Biden goes. I feel like Biden taking a vacation from his vacation because he only works like three hours a day. I don't know. Wow. He goes to Delaware. That seems like a certain kind of hell. But <laughs> but like, you know, he has to incorporate something. <laughs> <laughs> Check the P.O. boxes. Um, you know, it's like what's <laughs> like what's up? I mean, you know, whatever, like walk from one I mean, side of the state to the other in 10 minutes. But I it's like people, people need vacations. Ted, you take vacations. I take vacations. People need to take vacations. But what's weird if is if I were like, president of the United States, I wouldn't take a vacation for four years. I'd be like, I, I belong to the American people. I mean, look, honestly, it's like it's like how doctor's offices are closed on weekends or holidays or back in the old days on Wednesdays when they would go golfing. It's like, look, people get sick on Saturdays. Um, you know, the U.S. government, things happen. You know, the, there are foreign policy issues. Things come up any time. The president ideally would not even sleep in a minute, but obviously we're only human. But I think, uh, the, I think people at this level, they should be working seven days a week. It's four years. You'll get past it. You'll be fine. You'll rest then. Even Teddy Roosevelt, what, took off a month to go into the uh, wilderness out in Montana and Wyoming? I mean, and they didn't know where he was. I mean, a month. <laughs> Those animals aren't going to kill themselves. A month. I mean, but, but to your point, too, when they say that the president, he never he never or she will never really take a vacation because, well, they're always connected. And I was going, he's on the golf course. Really? You're telling me that the guy who's on the 14th green teeing it up. I've, I've never, ever heard of nor seen a president, an aide running up saying, sir, you need to go to the you know secure phone. It's you. a fair point. Even I mean, George, even George W. Bush didn't stop reading my pet goat. <laughs> he finished my pet goat. Well, he wanted to know how it was going to end. You know, it's a cliffhanger. I mean, I, you know, you want to know, like, what's going to happen? Does, is, does the goat remain a pet? Does, does the goat dinner, you know, you just <laughs> don't, the goat could become dinner. What kind of dinner? Kebab, cheese. So 
Anyway, look. Uh, you really look, hold. So you really hold to the idea that executives at that level should take no vacations. Yeah. No, I, I I do think that's right, especially because it's limited. It's it's a four year term. Um, you you know you you have those four years. You should be good in good. You should be there all the time. I'm sorry, I could do that, and I would take the job happily under those circumstances. And if anybody in my life isn't happy about it, it'd be like too bad. I, you know, I'm serving the American people. Well, all right. Well, you know, uh, we're going to be back in just a minute, um, and I believe we're going to be talking about the new Cold War. Yes, we will, or at least the wannabe new Cold War. You're listening to DMZ America with Ted Rall and Scott Stanis. We'll be back right after this. So the United States is being challenged all across the world by not Russia, although uh, there seems to be some evidence that's uh, in the um, you know virtual world we are. But uh, more to the point, market after market, place after place, uh, China is building islands in the South China Sea, uh, taking over territory claimed originally by the Philippines. It's moving into Central and South America, Africa, parts of Europe. It's investments in the United States where it holds, what is it, nearly $2 trillion of our debt. Is there a new Cold War? Should there be a new Cold War? On my, from my perspective, Ted, yeah, there absolutely should be. Ted being Ted Rawl, coming to us from the left. I'm Scott Stans coming to you from the right, and you're listening to the DMZ America podcast. Um, Ted, you know, we talk about Cold War. Your disdain for Harry Truman for, say, you say, single-handedly started the Cold War, which, of course, is hogwash. He didn't do it by himself because we were being challenged by Russia. I'm not, but can you explain, because you've mentioned this on the podcast before, go into it with a little more detail, the, the, the genesis of the Cold War with Russia, and then we're going to dovetail into talking about where we are with China right now. Okay, so I, let's let's. I want to do that, but before I do that, just to be difficult, um, wasn't there? <laughs> you, Dad? This this segment really began um, because of something you read about uh, some someone was calling for a new Cold War with China. Oh, and many many people on thing. the right, many people, some people on the left are saying that they clearly see a threat coming from China, both militarily and also politically, and. Maybe even more to the point, which is more frightening to Americans on a business and an economic strata, they're definitely moving in on the United States. Frankly, they're doing some great and smart stuff. They're outflanking us because they're doing things, Ted, like they're doing long-term planning. We plan for the next quarter. We plan for the next election. We don't think past our noses on anything. The Chinese are setting up plans to do set up build ports in uh, Mexico, for instance, that are going to challenge the ports on the West Coast of the United States. Absolutely. And this isn't a plan that's going to happen in the next five years, the next 10 years. It's going to happen in the next 20 to 50 years. Some of the plan planning is 100 years in the future. It's And it's a, why is this disturbing? Why is this challenging? Because first of all, obviously it challenges our interests as a country and as an economy, but also challenges our values. And I think that you have to stand up and say no. Well, I think, Scott, that there, look, there's no doubt that there is an emergence, an emerging, uh, more assertive China. That's been the case for decades. Uh, people are just starting to pay attention. I remember I noticed when I was visiting uh, Tajikistan, former Soviet Republic uh, in the southeast of, of uh, the, the former USSR that borders China, that uh, all of the city buses in the capital of Dushanbe had Chinese uh, writing on the sides. And I asked uh, someone who knew who could read it what it said. 
And they told me that it said a you know gift from your brothers in the People's oh, wow. Republic of China. Wow. Um, so all the, the entire city bus system had been donated. And um, you know, so the Chinese have been buying, and I, oh, also in Tajikistan, uh, China had been uh, building, rebuilding, or building uh, railroads through the very uh, steep mountains that are part of the Himalayas, and uh, building dams. We saw uh, uh, Chinese workers, workmen, uh, paving highways. So. And this was all basically a gift to the government of Tajikistan. There would just be like a sign with a Chinese flag saying, you know, gift of the PRC. Um, so that was the beginning. And, you know, subsequently, I've, you know, they, they've expanded their, uh, they've been buying and renting influence throughout Central Asia and South Asia. And then now all over the world, South Africa, um, in, uh, certainly in Afghanistan, notoriously buying up mineral rights. Uh, under the U.S. occupation in South America. So there's no doubt that there is a phenomenon and that China is out there. And I think the question is, is it a problem for, is it a problem at all for the world or specifically for the United States? And then if it is a problem, then how does one react to the problem? I, I question the idea that it's a problem at all. Uh, you know, it's, okay, go on. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't think that, look, the U.S., cannot and should not try to run the entire world. Uh, this has not worked out well for us. Uh, we tried to make the 20th century the American century, and I don't think the 21st will be the Chinese century per se, but we can share a bit, you know, with other emerging regional superpowers like, uh, like Brazil and, uh, and China and Russia. Uh, and, um, I think it's it, we we have to sort of be willing to have a multilateral world that you know I don't know why we feel like we have to run the whole thing economically politically or otherwise but if we and it's kind of like in many cases the Chinese are merely going into vacuum filling vacuums uh, economically that the United States isn't particularly interested in I mean we occupied Afghanistan for 20 years and all throughout that time, mineral rights uh, were up for bidding. The U.S. absolutely could have secured those rights at a sweetheart rate, but chose not to really be competitive. The Chinese came in and fair and square scarfed them up, and now we're annoyed. Well, I mean, it's like you don't get to be annoyed when you weren't in the game, and you could easily have afforded to have been in the game, but we chose not to be. But then the question is also, if we are going to... I mean, I, I hate to sound like, I don't know, a free market Republican, but I kind of feel like maybe we should just compete against China economically and just be better at stuff than they are, rather than trying to view everything under the through the lens of a military challenge. I mean, the Cold War was a series of proxy conflicts throughout the world that cost um, between, that emerged at the end of World War II. I'll just segue into this if you don't mind. Um, and um, you know, at, at the end of in, after, at the end of World War II, uh, FDR and uh, Stalin had carved up the world into Soviet and American spheres of influence, and they specifically did this negotiation at a series of conferences, but most notably at Yalta. After FDR died. Um, then his idiot, his idiot Missouri Vice President Harry Truman became president, 
much to the consternation of uh, victims of the Red Scare and union members and, and everybody else and the, the citizens of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and everyone who always thought it would be a bad idea to start nuclear weapons, to use nuclear weapons. But he decided to welch on the deal that FDR made with Stalin and, and say, okay, well, no, sorry, Joe. Uh, oh, did, did the US sign a deal with you? Oh yeah, no, actually uh, we don't agree to let you have Eastern Europe all to yourselves. We don't agree to let you have your spheres of influence. We're gonna challenge you all over the place. And that's how the, the Cold War raged for decades in, in proxy wars from Latin America to South to Cuba, Bay of Pigs, Afghanistan, all over the North and South Korea, all over the place. And for what? Trillions of dollars were squandered by both countries. Millions of people died. Um, the tensions were needlessly high. Two generations of school children were terrorized by the imminent threat of atomic war. And for, no, for what? It was all a waste. It's all money that could have been used to feed and build and heal. And we didn't do any of that. So why would we want to go down that road with China? I don't understand. Well, firstly, because we won. And we won for a very good reason. First of all, we were resolute in our uh, uh, standing up to what the Soviet Union had stood for back then. Um, we And this is... Uh, pushing forward, and this may be a laughable term to some people, but American values. And I think American values at their best are things like democracy, freedom, free press, free, free speech, uh, just, just freedom. And that's what we were fighting for. Now, the Chinese are, do not believe in any of those things. Uh, they have political prisoners, they have gulags, they have all the stuff that we, you know, that yeah, we not like Not like us. No, no. We, we, don't have a, we don't have a gulag at all. At Guantanamo. We just have one. <laughs> <laughs> and black sites in Poland and Bulgaria and Thailand oh, and Hungary. Good, good capitalist, we actually outsource that stuff. And that's, you know, so we're making jobs, uh, giving jobs to people who won't do who won't do it in America. And we don't have political prisoners <laughs> at all. Julian Assange, Ch Chelsea Manning. Well, we uh, no, we're not Steven a Stephen Donziger culture, and that's where I say you can shoot this down. But by but by on balance, the idea of, of freedom versus state control, there's no question that to confront this is, in my mind, Ted. There's no other option. There is no other option. Well, that's not true at all. I mean, you can even if you assume there's a conflict, you don't have to fight that conflict. You can always walk away and just say, "I'm not playing this game. I'm not doing it." Well, you but you do that at the at the detriment of the of the culture of the world. Now you say you could step aside, and there, I mean, there's a part of me. We've had this discussion before. There's a part of me that does believe in, um, you know, the Fortress America guys from the 1930s and 40s who didn't want to get involved in World War II. You know, they said, "Screw it, let's just build the economy. We have the natural resources and the industry. Let's just make America America, and to hell with the rest of the world." Unfortunately, as Pearl Harbor slash 9-11 prove that the world tends to come to you. Yeah, but we wait, 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 wait. Not so fast here. Uh, Pearl Harbor didn't exactly come out of a clear blue sky. It's not we weren't we weren't leaving Japan alone. Pearl Harbor was a response to American foreign policy. So was 9-11 was a response to American foreign policy. Those were, you know, if we hadn't messed around, if we hadn't imposed an oil embargo on Japan, Pearl Harbor wouldn't have happened if we hadn't uh, been occupying uh, Saudi Arabia 
uh, and oppressing the Palestinians, 9-11 would have never happened. Uh, no, there. I mean, yes, there are always excuses for those types of actions. My point is that we don't live in a vacuum. You just made my point for me. We don't live in a vacuum. We live in a world where if you try to ignore the world, the world's going to come come a knocking. And so with, when comes- <laughs> you, you didn't just that, that's not what you just said, though. I mean, the thing is that he like though in those situations, that was the U.S. being involved in an outward foreign policy. And there, and then we got some blowback and then we bitched about it and pretended like we were like somehow like, what? Like we were just minding our business. That's not true. If we had been just minding our own business, it's entirely possible the world never would have come a knocking. Oh, that's, but, but you had to, what, given what the Chinese were, I mean, the Japanese were doing in China, I mean, you, you could not countenance what that kind of behavior. So in a very, I'm sorry, fairly benevolent act of, of statehood, they said, we're not going to give you any more oil. And they said, oh, yeah, you are. And they, you know, came and they bombed Pearl and they took over the other territories we had in the South Pacific. I, China is a threat that way. China, if you look at the Chinese model, do you want that? Uh, let me ask Wait, you that Ted. way. You're saying they're a threat in this, in an analogous way to Imperial Japan in the 1930s and early 40s. Oh, absolutely. In terms of its growth, in terms of its, uh, in terms of its militarily, do you think they want to occupy? You you think they want to invade, for example, hell, Taiwan, the Philippines? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I think they're well. Philippines are already doing it. It's a, it's it's a weird kind of militarization. It's not obviously invading it. They're not bombing it yet. But in the Philippines, they're building those islands to to and, and movie. <laughs> You're obsessed with those islands, man. Well, because I because you know why? <laughs> I got to be honest with you. You in those I, islands? You know, just, maybe, you're just jealous for you got island fever. You want to build an island yourself? Oh, you damn right I do. <laughs> you, you could do that, like you could. Oh, and you know, I, and and what is that called? That that flag thing that you're into? What's it called? Vexiology. Yeah, vexiology. Yeah. So you'd have you could design your own flag, you know. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. There's no question. You know why? Because I think it's brilliant, because I do happen to look at the Chinese building of those islands as something that's really think about it. It's like your neighbor. And all of a sudden you've just built like a mountain in his backyard and you put the flag, your flag on top of it saying, no, it's mine now. And your neighbor's going, what? Now, in college, I knew this. I knew this girl who uh, who she we didn't date or anything, but I knew her and she had a house and her parents had a house in New Jersey. And the and the, the neighbors kind of did that. They kind of put a giant hill. They had a beautiful view of a valley. Then back, but the back, but the neighbors blocked it with sort of the, by building a hillock with a bunch. <laughs> of, and then and then they they carted in these giant trees like sixty footers, and completely yeah. blocked their view. Why? And and, and in, in the end, military actions resolved the issue. Uh, they waited for the neighbors to go on vacation. And uh, they cut the trees down. <laughs> See, that's this whole conflict in a microcosm there. Ted, you just made my point for me. No, I just, Perhaps. I'm, the islands, I think, are, are br- they're a brilliant idea. And that's why I keep going back to them, just because they're so outlandish. Uh, but the threat against Taiwan, the expansion, economic expansion. And I mean, let me ask you this. Do you want the Chinese model? Do you want the Chinese government model to, to be the model of the world? Well, first of all, I I kind of don't look, I don't really care what the model is for the world as long as as I'm really concerned about what happens within the borders of the United States. Um, So, you know, hey, 
if uh you know the government of angola says oh my god i like the way that the prc is doing things and uh, we'd like to have that sort of weird amalgam of uh you know sort of socialism in name only with where we're gonna have awesome pictures of mao Zedong, but everything is capitalist um then sure enjoy knock yourselves out uh it doesn't i don't lose any sleep over that i i believe in self-determination and national sovereignty and uh, other countries have the right to follow whatever what other whatever model they want i don't see in the same way that i don't see how gay marriage affects the sanctity of straight marriage. I don't see how other countries potentially following the Chinese model affects us at all. And for that matter, I don't even see how any other country in the world is changing their political system in any way to accommodate China or to, to emulate China. They're not. They're what? just taking Chinese money and doing business with them. And this is all about money. It's all, oh, I of mean, course. you should love this. It's just about economic activity. Well, it's I, it's I markets like being open, that's all. And I want the American form to take to be the winner in economic battles. Uh, and they're not right now. And I would also argue by extension, and this is a stretch, and I admit it right off the bat, Ted, that this is a stretch, that for instance, the 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 growing fascism in, in Poland, the growing fascism obviously in uh, Hungary, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, that that is part and parcel of what we're looking at. Is that going to be the model going forward in the 20th century, 21st century? Now, China is the exemplar of that president. Z is, is clearly, um, you know, he ginned up, changed the rules as it were, not as it were, he did change, have the rules changed so he can be president for life. This is a dictatorial, uh, you know, fascist state we're looking at now going forward and that, that idea- Well, it's not, a, it's not a fascist state. It is a definitely an authoritarian state. Um, I, I'm not really so sure that I'd even call him a dictator. I mean, staying, there's more to dictatorship than sort of remain, than a life term, right? I mean, dictatorship requires you to have absolute power uh, and be able to, as an individual leader, have your, uh, have control over a lot of details of people's everyday lives. That's not true really about China. It's an authoritarian state. Um, it has vested some elements of totalitarianism, but like President Xi cannot rule. He can't govern individually. You know what I mean? Like he he has to. He has a lot of other individuals. Like you know, like Hitler had a had a was a, a a pure dictator. He could have anyone fired if he didn't like Goering. Goering was gone. Um, President Xi's got you know a lot of other uh, officials to contend with. He has to make nice with his Politburo. He has you know. There's a lot of other layers there. There are some layers, but as head of the party and head of the government, he has absolute authority. And if he wants to get rid of you, if he wants to disappear you, you're disappeared. I, I can't disagree. I, I think that we have to stand up. We're the, you know, we're the last standing superpower. We have to stand up and confront this. Now, you, you know, you you talk about Harry Truman as if he did something wrong. I think he did something absolutely right by because Stalin and Stalinist Russia was expansionist. China. What's interesting about this story too is that China, and you, you know, you is know, not this, militarily aggressive, but but it, it but it's becoming militarily aggressive. I mean, when you send where, out your, except for your magical islands, where? <laughs> well, I would say also it's it, the uh, war games. It's in in its uh, forays into Taiwanese uh, airspace, and that's how it starts. That's Mo just saber rattling. It's not. I mean, come on, compared well, to say the United States, which invades countries on the other side of the world. 
Um, that's well, that, military militarily aggressive. But they're using they are using weirdly economic forces to to strengthen their positions around the world. They're, and then right, they're gonna, that's what they're doing. And they're no gonna, doubt. And you're going to wake up with a position of that. You're going to have a lot of countries they throw a lot of money around. They do throw a lot of money around. And that to me is a danger as well. So no one's stopping us. We could do the same. We could, but that's not how we roll. Uh, Well, but maybe if there's going to be a new cold war, there should instead be a new economic war where we, we play the, we, we, we uh, do what the Chinese are doing, but we do it better where we spread American influence um, through positive means by helping people build new roads, dams, you know, not, we don't do things like we do with the world bank where, uh, you know, we, we put, we uh, ask countries to go into debt for us. Uh, Instead, you know, we, we give them gifts and we say, we put a big giant American flag sign and say, Hey, your subways are a gift from the benevolent people of the very democratic and awesome uh, United States of America, where the Ramones and hamburgers are from. <laughs> the Ramones? Yeah, they're the best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Uncle Sam is Joey Ramone. <laughs> oh, I wish. I can see this now, but I can't disagree with you more. I, I really do think China has, I don't think, I know, China has an expansionist policy, which it's never had in its history, by the way. It's never, it always kind of kept, kept to itself. There were civil wars and stuff, but for the most there part- was a, There was a, contra- there's been like, uh, there's been contraction and expansion, but with sort of like a beating heart within a sort of constant exactly. set of borders. Exactly. Now we're seeing them expanding into being a world- in a world dominant power. And that scares the living hell out of me. And it should scare the hell out of everybody who believes. I don't know. It's like, seems, it almost seems racist. It almost seems like when those articles started coming out and saying like, well, you know, America could become less than 50% white. I'm like, who cares? You know, I'm white. I agree with you on that. I mean, that's, that's a totally different issue. I don't think this is racially motivated. This is the same language and concern that I can remember having dur- during those times when Russia was clearly a threat to the United States and American interests around the world. Well, again, I, I, look, Russia really wasn't a threat to the United States. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I think that's just oh, like, come on. Well, what were they going to do? They didn't want to nuke us. They were constantly playing catch up in the Cold War. They didn't want they to were, nuke us. We, we outspent them. Thousand missiles aimed at us. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, but as opposed to our two thousand aimed at them, and well. and ours were better missiles. I mean, they were constantly trying to catch up with us. That was their thing. I mean, they were they were in uh, they were always playing catch up. The Cold War, we started it. We prolonged it. It ended because we ended it. It was our fault. We should have never done it. I couldn't disagree more. On that happy note, <laughs> we're, we're coming to the end of this segment. This is fun. Um, we're going to be talking about history coming up and talking uh, some going diving deep into what's happening in Afghanistan with the attacks, the recent attacks at mosques of ISIS and what that means for us, if anything at all, certainly what it means to Afghanistan. And we have one of the world's foremost experts on Afghanistan. That's Ted Rawl. We're coming up next. Thank you, Scott. Welcome back. You're listening to the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and me, Scott Stantis. In the last couple of weeks, there have been numerous attacks by the 
by ISIS on Taliban forces inside Afghanistan. Uh, in Kandahar and in uh, Kunduz, there have been bombings of mosques. And you got to ask yourself, what, I mean, on the face of it, most Americans would say ISIS, Taliban, they're the same thing. Well, they're not. And we're really blessed on this podcast. I'm really blessed to call on my friend, but it's, we're really blessed to have Ted Rawl, who's one of the foremost experts on Afghanistan, has traveled there several times, um, is really kind of, an, uh, really is one of the more, one of the great American experts on this issue. So Ted, I'm going to bring you in on the conversation, obviously, because it's, you know, our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it would be weird to leave me out, you know. <laughs> well, let's, 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 let me jump in right now and say stupid American. You know, with ISIS, Taliban, they're the same damn thing, aren't they? They're not. Well, no, they're, they're not. So um, ISIS uh, really is called ISIS because uh, the, it, the last I and the last S are for Iraq and Syria, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And uh, basically, that's where it started at one point. Uh, and, and basically, ISIS is notable for people who have forgotten for wanting to restore the caliphate. Uh, which is something that other radical Islamist groups have not believed was possible. Uh, the caliphate was basically the Islamic equivalent of the papacy for, for Catholics. It was a sort of global government, religious government that presided over all of Islam, particularly Sunni Islam. Uh, and it was deposed at the end of World War I. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, which is now we now think of as Turkey, was an ally of the losing axis of the losing powers uh, like Germany uh, at the end of World War One. So, as part of the punishment for being on the wrong on the losing side, the they got rid of the caliphate, and it that has caused immeasurable problems. I think at at a certain point, the Brits and their allies at the end of World War One and at the treat and uh, during the Versailles Conference thought that they would weaken Islam and and the Muslim world. But what it instead had the effect of doing was kind of um, decentralizing and scattering and uh, making uh, sort of making stirring up the hornet's nest of Muslim leadership and making it hard for Muslims to sort of coordinate and try to figure out when there are doctrinal um, and political disputes how to resolve them in the way that, say, Catholics have a, a method of doing that. You know, whether you're Catholic in Bolivia or you're Catholic in China, you sort of uh, follow the, the Pope, the papacy's uh, lead. Um, you know, the Muslims used to have that kind of leadership under the caliphate. Now they don't. And many uh, Muslim uh, leaders, including Osama bin Laden, bemoaned that and wanted to bring back the caliphate. But people like bin Laden and al-Qaeda didn't believe that the circumstances were possible uh, as things currently stood, that there would have to be some developments that would allow that to happen. The Islamic State kind of went further. Um, they were like, look, we're starting the caliphate. We're building it. We're doing it ourselves. And they took advantage of the Arab Spring and the disintegration of Syria into the, Syria, the Syrian civil war. And unfortunately, funding by, yes, the United States taxpayer of, yeah. of the Free Syria Army, part of which morphed into what became ISIS. ISIS eventually at one point uh, occupied half of Syria and half of Iraq, quite a vast expanse of territory. And it was these were regions that produced a lot of oil and they collected the oil revenues. They had stamps, they minted coins, uh, they had uh, a very sophisticated media 
uh, presence online and uh, on television and radio out there. Uh, and although they have pretty much gotten their asses kicked pretty royally, particularly on the Iraqi side of that border, uh, they, while that was happening, managed to license their franchises out all over the world. So there's an ISIS in Africa. There's, uh, it was ISIS attackers in Europe who carried out the Charlie Hebdo terrorist attacks in Paris. Uh, and there's now an ISIS outpost called ISIS Khorasan. Khorasan is the ancient name for uh, Afghanistan and part of Central Asia. It's called, so you've heard the term ISIS-K. Uh, it's a franchise and they're kind of new to Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban are indigenous nationalist uh, forces that have been there uh, the whole time. Um, and although Afghanistan has played host to other Islamists from other places, like Uyghurs from Western China uh, and uh, radical Muslims from uh, Uzbekistan, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the Taliban have been 99% of the uh, radical Muslim presence in Afghanistan. Maybe, I mean, that might be exaggerated, maybe 95% for a long time. But now, interestingly, um, as the former U.S. puppet government of Ashran Ghani was collapsing, uh, there were some vacuums that opened up and ISIS-K filled up a few of them, particularly in northeastern part of the country. And they have some outposts there. And now uh, there's a sort of a minor struggle for power. So even though uh, the war between obviously the Americans and Taliban is over, a new low intensity conflict has now emerged as uh, ISIS launches terrorist attacks against uh, particularly Shiite mosques in, in Sunni-dominated, uh, Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. I don't think that there's any danger of the Taliban being overthrown uh, at all uh, in, in, in the near future, and certainly not by ISIS-K, but they definitely have the uh, potential to be a major um, source of conflict and violence and they're kind of like a big nuisance in the time for the time being. Okay, so let me just just for my own edification here. Um, the, the Taliban is mostly Sunni. Oh yeah, they're almost exclusively Sunni. And ISIS is Shia. No, no, they're Sunni also. So that's why they're attacking Shia, the Shia. Oh, I get it. So with with the so with the expectation of achieving what. Because the Shia would be, I'm assuming the Shia would be down in the south, um, eastern part of the state, the part that's closer to Iran. Would that be? Well, that would be uh, actually, so Afga uh, Iran's, Afghanistan's western border is with Iran. Um, but no, not really, because the it, you would think that that would be the case. But it's the, there's a Shia presence throughout the country, because historically, not a long time ago, just a few centuries ago, uh, Afghanistan was part of the Persian Empire. And, um, you know, as recently as the 1700s. So there was, uh, there's a huge um, sort of Persian influence throughout Afghanistan. In fact, the written language is Dari, which is, uh, you know, the same script as is used in Iran. So there's a, the, Iran probably, I mean, Afghanistan has, in, is influenced by all of its neighbors. There's an Uzbek part, there's a Turkmen part, there's a Tajik part, there's a Pashtun part. But without a doubt, uh, you know, the, the, Pashtun, the, the Pashtun part is uh, dominant within the Taliban movement, but Afghanistan itself is kind of 
all Persian all over. And there's, um, you know, it's all overlaid, it's complicated, because it's a buffer state. It's all it's in between, you know, it's not. So I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, it's I know, I've, I thought I was here to make things easier, but I think I'm making it more complicated. Um, if, if you're okay, ISIS is attacking Shia mosques, right? The purpose of, of whom there of which there are not many to begin with. So what's the point? Well, so the point is uh, the comp basically ISIS K is trying to present the narrative that the Taliban are weak, wimpy sellouts, and that ISIS K is hardcore Sunni true believers. And so, if you're really, you know, original, if you're very, very heavy metal, you go with ISIS K, and uh, you know the Taliban. They front as badass Muslim Sunnis, but really they're kind of wusses. So they're, <laughs> I'm sorry, the Taliban is too warm and fuzzy for these guys? Yeah, it's kind of like the, yeah, it's kind of like ISIS K is death metal. You know? I gotcha. I gotcha. So, I mean, so because there have been numerous attacks around, clearly they're active. What, um, I mean, as, as someone who has studied and traveled extensively through Afghanistan, what's the long term? Is, is there a long term effect here? Well, that's, I mean, long-term effect is hard to say. I'm very deeply skeptical. I mean, I think the question is going to be to what extent the Taliban, you know, who are still trying to consolidate political control over the country, um, set up a government and try to salvage uh, a failing economy in the aftermath of the Western pullout and uh, all their bank accounts being frozen and losing access to Western aid, which is a major set of challenges for the new state. Um, how are they going to, in the middle of this, be able to figure out, set up an intelligence apparatus coupled with a military police that can A, identify who is in ISIS-K, B, find them and arrest them or kill them. Good luck. Um, so I think this is kind of probably going to be a nuisance for them for a while. But if the Taliban move closer to establishing a viable state, which has not really happened yet, uh, then, then it'll be on their list of things to do to go after ISIS-K and put an end to them. Um, they're going to, you know, this does put the Taliban in a difficult position ideologically, because they have marketed themselves as on domestically as, look, we're Muslim purists. We're going to cut the hands off of thieves. We're going to kill all the bad guys. Uh, you know, we're going to put women in burqas, but they've been telling the international community exactly the opposite. We're yeah. not going to do those things. We're, we're going to let women work. We're going to let them go to school. Uh, we're we're going to keep the, all the schools open. Uh, we're going to let uh, people from different factions be part of the government. And so, you know, they're kind of torn between these two impulses. They kind of need to do both. They need the international community. They need the acceptance. They need the trade. They need the money. But they also don't need, they also have to please their own people. Otherwise, a group like ISIS-K or something like it could supplant them as like the new defenders of the faith. Well, what we're hearing from Afghanistan is the younger members of the Taliban. Correct me if I'm wrong. This may just be BS reporting and not accurate, but that the older Taliban are looking at the younger guys and going, oh, those crazy kids and their cell phones, you know, I mean, that they're 
there's the younger Taliban sensibilities are whether the younger persons would be in this modern 21st century world. I mean, is that true? It is true. Um, there is definitely, look, it's a, there's been multiple generations of Taliban, hard to believe, but the Taliban movement goes back to 1994. So it's been a while. And you're talking about a part of the world where people, they don't have kids when, you know, not like here where people are having IVF and having kids when they're 40. I mean, you know, generations flip over every 18 or 16 years over there. So there's been three generations really of Taliban. Wow. And, and so, you know, generation one were the people who, the, the Essites who fought the, uh, the Soviets as the Mujahideen during the 1980s. Uh, generation two ruled the country from 1996 to 2001, the regime that blew up the Buddha statues and put women in burqas and all that. And now generation, I'd say they continued and then they into uh, after they were thrown out by the US invasion. And now their kids are in charge. So we're kind of coming into generation four. And generation four is these they're modern. Yeah, these are kids and who are completely tech savvy. Um, they are uh, they're they're modern. They're more connected to the world, and they don't want to blow things up and go back to the 14th century. Um, they have no interest in that. It's not going to happen. This is it's a different state so of what, affairs. So, what do they have interest in? Ultimately, what 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 do they what do they want? If you're a 20 something Taliban member. I think they want a hodgepodge. I mean, look, Taliban ideology has always been a hodgepodge of what they call Pashtunwali, which is the Pashtun tribe code of hospitality that dictates how uh, people in that part of the world interact with each other, you know, the issues of um, how families relate to each other. It's like a tribal code and what they consider to be pure Islam, but really it's just like their version of Afghan and Pakistani Islam. Now it's this is going to be further hodgepodged. Um, I think they want modernity. They want uh, harsh punishments against crimes. They want the ability to earn a living and drive a nice car. Uh, but they also want uh, women sort of backburnered, not necessarily in a burqa, but not so not quite as oppressed as before, but still more oppressed than they would be in the West. Um, I think they're, these are people who they, they, they see themselves as sort of, they're almost like, you know, Muslim bros, if is the best way to think about it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, we want to do things our way, like with a little swagger, w wear some outrageous clothes, you know, they, in, there's been all these amazing photos of the way these guys dress, which are crazy, like white like colors and pardon? Yes, an example. Well, they wear like, so they, there's this book called Anti-Fashion that sort of showed um, how people like would wear like garbage bags and stuff like that. It's kind of like this strange hodgepodge of, uh, you know, Western clothing and, and Afghan clothing. So they'll wear, um, they'll wear traditional Afghan clothes, but mixed with like, say, a baseball cap with the Taliban logo on it. Um, they'll have... Uh, you know, cool headphones, like bright red headphones on while they're, you know, carry, carrying their AK-47s. Uh, it's very strange and, uh, you know, interesting as hell, really. 
Well, okay. Thanks for your, um, we're going to get your more of your expertise as this issue continues. I mean, last question. So I've got to ask you, is this a threat to anyone, the ISIS and the, and the Taliban conflict? Is this, a, is this a threat to anyone outside of Afghanistan? Currently, no. I mean, ISIS is obviously a threat uh, to, uh, to other countries because they have launched uh, terrorist attacks in Europe and elsewhere and in, in the United States. I mean, by self-radicalized Muslims. I mean, there was a, a terrorist attack in Garland, Texas, you might remember, where there was a, a gathering of a, a right for a right-wing cartoonist contest so, which is like more reason not to apply to cartoon contests. Um, but yeah, two ISIS guys showed up in full ISIS regalia with AR-15s and were shot by the guards uh, at the at said cartoon contest. Yeah, if you're going to go someplace armed, I, uh, Texas is not the place I would pick to do that because you know everybody there is armed. That's a That's a fair point. I guess they figured they were armed too, but they were not armed enough. So yes. yeah, they were they were shot to death by off-duty police officers who had been hired to provide security at the event. But the point is that there's definitely uh, ISIS is 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 an outward threat. The Taliban never were a threat to the United States. Their concerns are and always have been domestic. So unless that changes, they're not. I mean, it's like. Uh, this might be like an enemy of our enemy is our friend kind of scenario to be where uh, we might be able to cooperate to some extent with the Taliban uh, in terms of going after ISIS. Um, I think ISIS is kind of a, a more toxic situation as far as security is consider concerned. Okay, thank you. No, thanks, Ted. No, and again, you're listening to Ted Raw, who's one of the foremost experts on Afghanistan in that part of the world. So we're very lucky to have him on this podcast. Coming up next is the attention deficit segment of our, we have a lot of stuff we haven't gotten to, believe it or not, we haven't gotten to in this podcast yet. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. So stick around. I'm Scott Stannis. So cannot wait. I'm Ted Rawl. We'll be back right after this. Hello, everyone. You are now listening to the last segment of today's DMZ America podcast with me, Ted Rall, coming to you from the left. <laughs> me, Scott Stennis, coming to you from the right. How dare, how dare you make, <laughs> make such a deep voice. You already have the deeper voice, Scott. So Scott has named this uh, the attention deficit disorder uh, segment and uh because he's politically incorrect, I'm just going to go along with it because, hey, so am I. In this segment, we talk about pretty much everything that we didn't talk about before, but we do it rapid fire in quick, rapid yes. takes. So I'm going to go first here. Okay. Asset forfeiture. I don't know what your opinion is about this, but for people who don't know what it is, civil asset forfeiture means you're driving in your car, the cops pull you over, and, let's just, and, they, and, they, and let's just say they say, Hey, do you got any cash in your car? And you say, yeah. And then you say, how much you have? I have $100,000 in cash. I was going to buy a house with that. Uh, the guy wanted it in cash. They, they can take the money and say, you know, we strongly suspect that you are a drug dealer. And under the civil, the civil asset forfeiture law, we are allowed to take that money. And let's just say they send you on your way. You are never charged with a crime or you're charged with a crime and you are found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury of your peers. Nevertheless, the police keep that money. The local police department keeps the money forever and ever and ever. 
and you can't ever get it back. And believe it or not, that's the law. Every single year, billions of dollars are stolen by, uh, by state and local law enforcement as a result of civil asset forfeiture. It's really out of control. It's been happening a lot. I think is it's it, disgusting. Is it only cash or is it property too? Is this part of the RICO laws? It's, it is not part of the RICO laws. It's oh, property really? too. They're taking people's cars too. And yeah. apparently they, they sort of are, the cops lay in wait and they're really excited when they see someone driving like with a Lamborghini or something like really hot. Cause they're like, Oh, we, you know, the force sure could, the force sure could use that one. I like to drive that one. And then they steal the car and it becomes part of the, of the police department's, uh, fleet of, of vehicles. Wait, and there is no recourse. There's no way to get it back. There's no way to go through, even through the courts. I mean, really? Well, people have attempted to, but it's a long road. And for the most part, it's not, there really is no recourse. You can, people, there has been political and media pressure in some cases where uh, the police decided to turn the money back over, but there's no legal way to get it back. It's not enough to simply go to, to a judge and say, hey, I wasn't guilty of any crime. Um, I wasn't involved in drugs. There was no evidence that I was involved in drugs. I want my stuff back. Well, dovetailing into law enforcement at my end, it's just that the uh, Claremont Institute out in California, the conservative think tank, used to be considered, you know, highly regarded by myself and others. And then during the Trump years, decided to lose its mind. <laughs> and so now it has recently come out and tried to codify what's the so-called constitutional sheriff. So are you familiar with this, Ted? I never heard of no constitutional sheriffs. They are effectively Trumpite sheriffs that subscribe to Trumpite ideals and will enforce laws that they feel are constitutional. So wait, these are sheriffs. These are actual sheriffs. These are actually law enforcement. It also goes to police force. And um, this expense, this is actually growing exponentially. It's, it, it's crazy how fast now huge this is. Effectively, Ted, they can enforce laws they want to enforce and not enforce laws they disagree with. Where does this come from? Well, isn't that always it, true? Kind of. It has what well, has been, but it's not supposed to be. How's that? You know, in well, a perfect world, law enforcement has discretion, right? There's discretion. This goes past that. I'm going to quote the story here. It says, although the Oath Keepers, another anti-government extremist group that recruits from law enforcement, have garnered more media attention in recent years, the Anti-Defamation League said in the report, the Constitutional Sheriff's Movement has, quote, arguably had more success infiltrating law enforcement, including its executive levels, end quote. I can say, as the editorial cartoons for the Chicago Tribune, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police up in Chicago is a Trumpite. Do you remember that big, ugly, gaudy uh, political um, thing they had on the on the lawn of the, of the uh, White House for Trump? He was there. He's also been the, the, he has also been there for other events and other Trump events. I mean, that's where this is coming from. These are Trumpites. These are guys who don't want to get vaccinated, right? These are guys who won't wear a mask. These are guys who have decided that you because the rules of the if they don't like the rules of the, you know, of the city they work for, then they just won't enforce them and they just won't do them. That's <laughs> dangerous. And that plays into the whole idea and the whole conflict that Ted and I have, which is I believe that anytime the state expands, it becomes a predatorial, predatory, horrible thing. This is just one of those examples. The police do not have a right to enforce the laws they want to and ignore the ones they don't. Um, that's fair. So what, what's your solution? <laughs> Tell them to knock this crap off. You're going to enforce all the goddamn laws or you're not going to enforce any of them. Well, and that latter part's really not an option. 
<laughs> Do you think right. that's going to work? I think what's happening now is in a lot of police forces around the country, they just, this one viral Ted, uh, viral video Ted just uh, was this cop announcing over the little speaking you know, of the little, oh, this is one Adam 12, the little microphone uh, uh, announcing to the rest of his posse in the police force that he was resigning because he refuses to let the state make him have a vaccine. Hmm. All right. Well, and you're, you're having a large number in Chicago. You're having a large number of police officers who are being either suspended or uh, fired because they won't follow the rules. That's all right. Well, that's insane. Um, you know, look, I think the problem here is that the the state is weak. Uh, and so there's a tendency historically, whenever the central government is weak for these kinds of rogue uh, m- movements, whether it's private militias or it's local law enforcement take uh, assuming greater powers than they're normally entitled uh, to, they tend to fill up the vacuum. So I think this is a strong argument for sort of bigger government, don't you think? Oh, God, no. This is an argument for smaller government, for local controls and for... uh, Well, it's the local controls that are the problem here, right? Or lack thereof. They're also local controls. Here's the thing. We've militarized the police. I mean, this is something, an area that you and I you know, agree on, which is that they shouldn't have been doing over the last 20 plus years when you have worn out equipment in Afghanistan, they or Iraq, they ship it and they, they offer it to the police force here. There's a coroner in Alabama, a coroner in a small county in Alabama, coroner, picks up dead bodies. That's his job. <laughs> Was offered and accepted a uh, fully militarized, fully armored Humvee. Who doesn't want that? I want it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I want it. That's just like, <laughs> but, but does a coroner really need it? <laughs> and the answer is, of course not. That's well, the, what if ISIS, you know, tries to steal the bodies? But that's the, and that's the danger of having a militarized police forces. They are incredibly powerful, terrifying to look at. And let's, you know, okay, right now it's Trumpites. Let's say next, you know, for those of you who are listening, who happen to agree with my point of view, let's say in six years, you know, you've got the progressives. They have a police state. They have a militarized police state that enforces their rules at their discretion. That's a danger beyond measure. And uh, this this is a story that you should be paying attention to and should scare the living hell out of you. What do you think? Right. Fair enough. Uh, so missionaries, uh, a bunch of uh, <laughs> a bunch sorry. of a bunch of missionaries have been uh, kidnapped in Port-au-Prince, hit in Haiti. And uh, there's been a ransom demand for millions and millions of dollars. And I guess the question is, why should we care? The U.S. government is involved. And this sort of got me thinking about how there were some Christian missionaries in Afghanistan, of all places, who uh, were captured many years ago. And uh, the French and American governments were negotiating for their release. I'm going to I don't know really that missionaries should even be a legal thing. I mean, what the hell? I mean, why can't we leave people alone in their own cultures, let them have their own religion and not bug people in their countries? I feel like, uh, you know, we sh- if people this is not even a, shouldn't even be a thing in the 21st century that uh, religious people are prophesizing overseas and trying to get people to change their religion to their religion. Now, are these Americans who are being kidnapped? I'm assuming they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So that makes sense. That's Pax Romana, right? That's where any citizen of Rome could walk the face of the earth unencumbered. And if they were attacked, they had the full force of Rome would come down on whoever attacked them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's sort of been the policy of America since its inception. Uh, Since we, you know, Jefferson sent, uh, you know, uh, uh, ships over to take care of the Barbary pirates, right? Right. Um, but in, in your, to, to your point, I think people have a freedom, have a right. To, I have a right to go to Spain. I have a right to go to Port-au-Prince. I have a right to go to South Africa or go to Saudi Arabia and bring out a Bible and say, listen, I'm a Christian. I think you should be a Christian too. Now, should this be something that is endorsed by or supported by the state? Of course not. Um, you know, separation of church and state is rather important here. And I think it's, a, it's an ideal that doesn't get... Um, uh, a, a lot of attention unless until it does, if that makes any sense. So uh, to your point, I think people have an absolute right to be missionaries. That's, you know, that's preposterous. Uh, but now do governments have the obligation to go in and free them whenever they get into trouble? I think you and I may actually have a point of agreement on that. Okay. All right. Sounds good. What do you have? Um, well, we talked about going into this, we talked about the Democrats imploding. The implosion continues. Now, I don't know if you heard in the last 24, 36 hours, uh, President Biden woke up from his nap and said uh, he's willing to compromise and, and roll back significantly the $3.5 trillion soft infrastructure. Uh, I don't know what else you call the damn package. Um, and uh, of course, the, uh, the squad and other progressives are going nuts. Are you going nuts, Ted? Well, I can't say that I'm surprised. Um, Look, this was an idiotic idea in the first place. I think I've mentioned this to you before. And what I'm referring to is splitting up the different spending bills into one that they could thought that they could just jam through with some bipartisan and uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema support, and one that they couldn't as part of the budget reconciliation process, which can only happen annually as part of the federal budget. uh, And you only need 50 votes in the Senate, which apparently uh, they don't seem to be able to get. I mean, this was an asinine idea in the first place. Uh, We are right exactly back where you would expect to be. It makes the whole party look stupid. Um, And I think there's been a lot of mistakes that have happened here, not least of which is that the Democrats have not been able to frame to the American people why they should support this big nebulous blob of legislation. Uh, You know, there's nobody knows what's in the bill. Uh, There's stuff in the bill that would be very popular with with voters if they knew what was in there, like, for example, uh, making childcare more affordable, which has been a big challenge uh, for many people for many years. But um, but a lot of parents can't go back to work, even though they want to, because the cost of childcare would essentially obliviate their their in their, their low incomes. So we need higher low, we obviously need a higher minimum wage, but we also need um, a high, lower childcare costs, or they should be subsidized by the federal or state government. Uh, this bill was going to do something about that. It looks like it's not, you know, they're, but they're not marketing it that way. They're not the, they could sell business. Look, you know, this is going to help Amer- you alleviate the labor shortage, get people back to work, get the economy moving. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's you know a, more a bunch of unforced errors. You know, a lot of Democrats and a lot of high ranking Democrats, why in the name of everything that's holy, are they not doing that, Ted? I mean, just, and, and again, people misconstrue my, anger at them for not doing it as, as endorsing what they're doing it's not i just like good politics this is just stupid politics and why are they being so stupid 
you know, Democrats are very good at snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. And this is just one of those examples. Um, you know, I mean, I think this kind of goes to a discussion, a broader discussion that we've had in the past. I don't really think that the Democratic Party coalition is viable anymore. I think progressives don't belong inside the Democratic Party, that they should form a new progressive party to harken back to uh, 1912 and the Bull Moose Party under Theodore Roosevelt um, and go their separate ways and uh, and leave the corporate Democrats to their own devices. And I know that's going to throw some elections to the Republicans for a while, but then the Republicans are probably should split as well, because I don't see really what corporate Republicans and MAGA Republicans have in common or why they should be in the part as part of the same party. Oh, I couldn't agree. I think we, you and I have had this discussion numerous times, which is that just having more and more uh, parties, not even calling them third parties, let's just call them other parties uh, being competitive. I mean, I, you know, I vote libertarian a lot of times because the Republican party candidate is usually, you know, a scoundrel or a moron or a healthy combination of both. And I, <laughs> won't and i haven't voted it's very difficult for me frankly to vote democratic um and so wouldn't it be i mean if we had a viable third or other party options like you said a progressive party for people who don't like the traditional statist you know uh hillary slash biden type democrats or you know on the republican side you're not a maga you you i am not i'm not i'm never trump republican it's just and but where do i go you know and i'd like some place to go it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I think, uh, I, I look, I think two parties has never been enough. We agree on this has never been enough for this country, and uh, that's never been clearer than it is now. Let me ask you something real quick, uh, and this is something you and I actually may agree on, which, but that's okay. Um, New York City City Council is getting rid of. They're moving out of the statue of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, this is kind of embarrassing. I mean. Look, it's not like he's Jefferson Davis. He's Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, and, and it seems that uh, this statue is being removed for the sole reason that he owned slaves, which, um, you know, I think it, it, it's more complicated than that. I mean, he, Thomas Jefferson uh, favored uh, uh, the, the emancipation of the slaves. He did not want slavery to be part of the American system, even though it was gonna personally cost him a lot of money and bankrupt him, he was willing to do that. He went to the mat for it, it didn't work. It's not like, you know, he was, his relationship with Sally Hemming could be viewed in 21st century terms as coercive, but, you know, in the context of the time, he was deeply in love with her. Uh, I think there's no reason to believe that it wasn't mutual. He introduced her as the uh, lady of the house, he wasn't married, he was widowed. Um, he, you know, he, he presented her uh, openly and danced with her at the French court when he was ambassador to France. Uh, you know, this isn't really like, by the standards of his own time, he wasn't some kind of racist pig. And even though he, you know, obviously was a product of his time, uh, it's kind of like, if you're going to get rid of Thomas Jefferson, who's kind of like the best of the old school founding fathers, the best, the best, then really there's no room for any of them at all. And maybe it's time to admit that the U.S. government should just go out of business. 
<laughs> I, you know, you touched on so many points that I totally agree with. I mean, although he, you know, he had a lot of slaves and they did a lot of work and he wasn't as kind to them as he was to Sally Hemings. They worked in the field. Yeah. Horrible, horrible, back breaking work. Um, George Washington, the same way. Um, uh, Madison, the only signer of the Declaration of Independence. There's one, one Ted who did not hire slaves or uh, own any on principle. And that was John Adams. One, one guy. Um, I think that history is nuanced. I think that, for instance, do you tear down, do you then tear down the Washington, I mean, the Washington Monument? Do you tear down the uh, Jefferson Memorial? Uh, I think it's okay to have addendums as we learn more, as our sensibilities change, as just common sense and common humanities perception of these guys change, to have something up there that says that. I don't have a problem with that, but removing statues like that is insane. Getting rid of Confederate generals and that, yeah, that's horse crap. Get rid of those things because they were put up as a big F you to um, reconstruction, to enfranchising recently freed slaves. Uh, they were also the, the Confederate flag was put up during the 1950s and 60s as again a, a middle finger to the civil rights movement. I mean, yeah, get rid of all that crap because that was born of and born on the back of slavery. These guys lived in a culture where slavery was. Okay, and that's how you maintained your life. I'm not justifying it. Owning another human being is wrong. Okay, I think everyone can agree on this. <laughs> but almost everyone. But Thomas, Je yeah, almost everyone. I imagine there's yeah, someone, some MAGA guys probably don't. But looking at history and thinking, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote some of the most sublime, important documents defining human freedoms uh, in our the history of our species. Yes, it, it totally neglected a whole segment of that culture. But what it did was lay the groundwork where that cult, where those people could ascend and throw over that system and make the system better and more inclusive. And that's, that's a good thing. If you're at the uh, Jefferson Memorial and there is a plaque that said, you know, oh, by the way, you know, this guy owned slaves. He was a hypocrite on a lot of issues that he, you know, on, on human freedoms. I don't have a problem with that. Because history is nuanced. History is, guess what? It's full of human beings and we're not 100% one thing or 100% the other. We're a multitude of, of, of everything. And some of us are a little better at things than others. And with Thomas Jefferson, he was a little better at understanding human freedoms. Exercising it, different different story there. So that's, that's my take on it. And so removing the statue is preposterous. Ted and I agree on this. So always good, as, uh, as they say, to end on an up. And so that's where we're going to end. Uh, thanks for listening to, uh, without a doubt, the longest DMZ America <laughs> podcast known to man, episode History. number 19. Uh, so uh, I, I'm Ted Rawl, and you can check me out at rawl.com, whowhatwhy.org, and sputniknews.com, and also at Counterpoint, where you can find my work and that of Scott Stantis, my friend, uh, we and a bunch of other uh, good political cartoonists. Uh, Counterpoint is a uh, daily email uh, newsletter uh, in which you get political cartoons delivered straight to your inbox. Go to counterpoint.com and check it out. Scott, where can the people find your stuff? Yeah, please go to, uh, if you haven't heard enough of me already today, go to <laughs> gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis, one word, or gocomics.com slash Prickly City. And you can see my comic strip there. So, Ted, it's really been a joy. Thank you. Always.